You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. On this podcast, we get to interview some amazing leaders who are building new markets for impact. But we also highlight recordings from our flagship event and year-round SOCAP 365 events. We know that scheduling, location, cost, and other obligations mean that there's a lot of people who may never get to join us at one of our live events. And we've loved being able to get some of the conversations and insights out through these episodes. This past June, we hosted a new event in Atlanta called Spectrum, which was focused on access, inclusion, and impact. We convened an amazing multicultural group of changemakers for two days of conversation to build a more inclusive impact economy. We created this inaugural Spectrum event because the next innovation boom isn't coming from New York or San Francisco. It's radiating from cities like Atlanta, New Orleans, Memphis, The fastest growing population of American entrepreneurs are Black, Latinx, Native people who are responding to real needs in their communities and creating companies that have a purpose beyond profit. Unfortunately, the investment and support for leaders of color is lacking, as many statistics clearly show. The racial equity gap is especially stark when it comes to investment and entrepreneurship. Founders of color are systemically under-recognized and under-resourced, and this prevents great startups from scaling and thriving. And the same demographics and systemic patterns play out in impact investing and social entrepreneurship as in traditional markets. Capital is still disproportionately deployed by and awarded to white people, even in a market that is dedicated to positive change. That has to change. So throughout the Spectrum event, we had short lightning bolt talks, some fireside conversations, a few panels, and lots of time for attendees to just meet and connect with each other. In this podcast, we've compiled a talk by Mark Bamuti-Joseph, Vice President and Artistic Director of Social Impact at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., a talk by Jessica Stego, Director of Business Incubation at Change Labs, an accelerator supporting entrepreneurs in the Navajo Nation, and a conversation between Frederick Hudson, CEO and founder of Pigeonly, and Jay Bailey, President and CEO of the Russell Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation in Atlanta, which was moderated by our amazing event facilitator, Nadia Brigham. We'll start with Bamuti, who brings art, poetry, and even opera to push the courage and leadership that is needed to address America's longstanding culture of freedom and of racism. This talk is about a set of twins, greatness and the market. Um, This is not to be alarmist, but the fate in the world, fate of the world is pretty much in the hands of everyone in this room. Uh, We only have eight minutes, so we won't discuss your leadership of the whole world. We'll just focus on this country. Um, We'll focus on the stakes of leadership in the age of making America great. I myself have a great American title. I am the Vice President and Artistic Director of Social Impact at the Kennedy Center, super highfalutin. Um, It's the nation's uh, performing arts center, and thus it's kind of obsessed with its relationship to American promise and aesthetics. Aesthetics. 
aesthetics are my love language. I think aesthetics are anything that a people believes to be good, beautiful, and true. So as I think of myself as a leader, I gotta ask myself, who are my people? What do my people believe is good? What do my people believe is beautiful? What do they believe is true? I made this opera. I want to share a little bit of it with you. Volume, please. Love yourself, baby. Oh, gee, say self-love leads to sex love. Oh, gee, say time did not reconcile me to my chains. It made me familiar with them. Say black and hideous. Say black and hideous. Say love is the only one sweeter than black. I share that with you for two reasons. Yeah, shout out to John Holiday, who's the countertenor that sung that. Um, I share that with you for two reasons. Um, one, because I had never really seen an opera before I wrote one, um, and I think that's the story of so many of us here. You just do it. Um, second, because um, what the brother was singing was where the words love is the only word sweeter than black. I just want y'all to hear that. So I have two kids, 17 and 13. Let's say they're my people. How do I lead with them in mind? This is my 17-year-old son. I'd say most kids his age don't really want to be great. They want to be known. And rightly so. There's a subgeneration of digital natives for whom social capital is in itself a kind of cryptocurrency. So as we start to model for my son's generation, there's a danger of conflating being famous with greatness. How do I lead in a way that makes good on that kind of market sensibility and animates the possibility of his American promise? By necessity, I have to take this approach to leadership that is centered in the capital of creativity and in the marketplace of American ideals. Artistic disruption in the context of federal bureaucracy, co-joined practices funneled through the lever of a $250 million arts business federally tied to some version of the American social contract. And for me, I have to constantly ask myself whose version of the American social contract. Who am I leading? And how do I use my institution as a lever for that leadership to rename the terms of engagement through new metrics and also more inclusive programs? At my American best, I wear my struggles as swagger. 
I am genetically encoded with my country's history. Racism is so embedded in America that when we protest racism, the average American thinks we're protesting America. Some of our embedded norms are dangerous and unsustainable, including our norms around class, including our tropes about class relative to race and gender. Altering the arc of culture takes heart. In fact, we might want to ask ourselves if our work is not only exciting, but it also feels courageous. Like on a meter between Zero and Harriet Tubman, how courageous is my work? Few of us in this room have the luxury to do our work without asking that question. Similarly, many of us in this room aspire to billion-dollar valuations, but that concept of enumeration comes within a social context. One of those contexts is that a billion dollars is even like a thing. The main way that I've ever seen economics trickle down is in their social impact, not their financial impact. If there's a great cloud of aggregated financial wealth in a city, it trickles down into impossible housing environments, cultural displacement, leading with four mission labor forces and artists. How great is your city if there aren't great artists living in it? How many great artists does it take to make a great city? And in this country, we have a mediocre man who embodies American lameness, frame the debate of what makes America great, presidentially adept at setting the bar low. So who brings the bar back up? Through what example do we reclaim greatness? How do we rebuild the moral infrastructure of our country? Is there an architecture that responds both to the market and an aspirational moral imperative? What are the stakes of not being great? Our systems of deportation, our prison system, they're beautifully designed. We can incarcerate people better than anyone in the world, but can we design freedom? Who does this work? Who leads us forward? Who leads us forward? Let me go back. My last solid cry probably came about six months ago. I first learned about this kid, Jamaria Hall. Before he could legally vote, Jamaria was suing the state of Michigan in federal court. He and a group of students from Detroit's worst performing high schools filed a class action lawsuit in 2016, alleging that the public school system in Detroit denies children their constitutional right to literacy under the 14th Amendment. Now, the idea of a constitutional right to literacy broke me open and exposed to the conflicts of my own civic instincts. A right to language, like a right to clean air, or a right to love. How does a black boy become an American? How does he learn his role to play? And what if that role, in part, is to stand in his country's closet, waiting for someone to imagine him as a monster in the dark? If I take everything that I love about being an American and everything that I love about being black, are those things themselves in a right and loving relationship? If not some legal charter, who gives us permission to be our greatest loving selves? If I can't legislate freedom, how do I make it alive in the bodies of the people around me? I've been asking a lot of questions I know, which leading in this age means you got to question everything. In my case, my business is to forge an American relationship between creativity and my people. 
between creativity and all people. I lead from a place of animated belief that we're going to be all right. Better than that, we're going to be great. Again, thank you. Pretty powerful and a reminder of the invaluable role that artists play in shifting culture. With a very different style but equally powerful message, this talk from Jessica Stego is an important reminder that entrepreneurship exists everywhere and cultural assets are often the inspiration and fuel for new business ideas. So when I speak in front of a large group, uh, or actually in front of anybody, I'm supposed to introduce myself in my language, customarily state who I am, as a Diné or a Navajo person. So, Yaj'e She Jessica Stego Yinishia, but Ani Nishle, Dozef Ga'an Bashishin, Ki Ani Dashache, Dozef Ga'an Dashinala, Tis Todent Nasha, Ado Asane Nishle, Akotego. So translated in English, that is, um, hello, my name is Jessica Stego. I am of the Folded Arm Clan, which is Bitahni, um, and born for a White Mountain Apache. My maternal grandfather is Kia'ani, which is Kia, uh, Towering House people, and my paternal grandfather is uh, White Mountain Apache. I'm also the co-founder of Change Labs, which is a business incubator and co-working space in Tonanazdiza, Arizona, which is um, in English Tuba City, Arizona, in the northern part of the state. Our project is the first of its kind on a Native American reservation. And uh, there's many challenges that we face in building our incubator. But we push through these challenges because we feel like entrepreneurship is the path for stronger and more resilient communities. And it's what's going to allow us to build an economy that is uniquely providing for our own needs. This is Tisto, Arizona, where I'm from, little dusty and a little desolate. <laughs> but my childhood really prepared me to look at the world in a different way. I come from a family of silversmiths. Um, as a child, I helped to produce uh, handcrafted sterling silver jewelry that we would sell in gift shops and galleries across the Southwest, places like Sedona, Tucson, Arizona, um, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and sometimes into California. My mother is the eldest of seven children, most of whom did go to college and earn a degree in the field of education. So I was raised by a family of uh, teachers, and uh, they taught me about resiliency. Their generation was shaped by the forced removal of Indian children from their homes to be sent far away to schools uh, to attend school. And hearing about this, uh, these stories across the reservation many, many years ago, our family leadership decided that the Bajahnis, which were my grandmother's children, would voluntarily go to school so they could study education and return as teachers. But when I, went, when I was growing up, I was told not to go into education. I was told not to study education and that I wouldn't work in the schools. And I think it was because my family was frustrated with an educational system that forced us to reject our cultural traditions in order to be successful, or at worst, violently forced assimilation policies that denigrated who we were in our cultural um, identity. So I was told to study business. So I spent my summers 
on the reservation with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles producing jewelry like this. And it's long hours, hard work, nothing really glamorous, although they do come out pretty, pretty nice in the end. My family decided that I would go into business because doing this, actually, the value was actually in our cultural skills. I was able to spend the summers doing this, and uh, the business allowed us to practice our cultural traditions, look at the art artistry in our skills, and actually make a living off of it. And my family does this to this day. In college, I began to realize that business was something different than uh, off the reservation than it was on the res. On the res, business was more about entrepreneurship. It was about scrapping, it was about pooling resources from across the community in order to make the business work. Today, most of the businesses that I work with are really small businesses. One or two people in the business, usually owned by one family. The largest business that's on the reservation uh, that's owned by a single Diné person is probably a hotel that employs about 25 to 30 people. So the barriers of growing, uh, growing a new business on the res are immense, and it's probably the most difficult to overcome is the fact that our land is federal land, which doesn't allow us to have private land that we can borrow against. Despite this, the entrepreneurs that I work with today in our incubator are successful in building businesses in a different way. They're successful in building businesses with the purpose of sustaining our Diné way of life. So as a whole, we're employing a strategy that contains indigenous knowledge and intelligence that actually gives us the capacity to build an economy that is true to our cultural identity. It accounts for the trauma that our people have historically endured and for the struggles of our daily current lives, and it honors the sacrifices that were made for us to survive. This success is based on a different set of values that sometimes isn't valued in a capitalistic economy, but it sets the foundation for this economy that we're building that will uniquely provide for our needs and value our cultural identities. So some of the businesses that I work with, this is Marissa Mike, and she's uh, building a business that would develop her own textiles based on the tradition of Diné weaving in her family. Lester and Rose Littleman, who invite people to stay on their land, camp and uh, experience guided tours to see the landscapes of the Western Navajo Nation. Brent Todlina of Ashkibadet, and he is practicing the customary skills of making, hand-making traditional moccasins. And finally, Sam Shingoitua, who repairs fitness equipment in remote healthcare centers across the reservation. He's focusing on ensuring that people who want to stay active have access to working equipment when they go into the fitness centers after driving 20, 30 miles just to get there. So these entrepreneurs are launching businesses in environment with many barriers, but they rely on the skills and values that have sustained us through a horrible history. And what excites me is just to think about what can happen if we apply resources that are available in other communities to these businesses that are on the reservations. So my job is really about how to make these ideas scale. How do we make the impact that we're all looking for? And so what purposeful leadership is to me is, one, our work should be based on what we value and not a set of practices that doesn't account for generational trauma, sacrifice, and more importantly, the knowledge that is gained from our unique experiences. Also, let's not be defeated by the status quo financial models that have failed people of color so far.
question how people arrive at the numbers and how it accounts for the non-traditional forms of capital in that equation. And lastly, if you want to see a lasting impact, we, we have to carry a responsibility to leave a legacy of opportunity for future entrepreneurs and future uh, generations. So I, my question is, how is your role as an entrepreneur in your community contributing to the systemic change you'd like to see for future generations? Yeah, thank you. Although the barriers facing all entrepreneurs are high, Jessica highlights the unique challenges that definitely exist for some communities more than others. Frederick Hudson is an entrepreneur who took his experience in prison and converted it into a successful business. He identified a solution from a lived experience that traditional investors have no familiarity with, which is true of so many entrepreneurs from marginalized communities. And Jay Bailey understands the challenging physical, cultural, economic environment for black entrepreneurs in Atlanta and works to support entrepreneurs in navigating through those challenges. Good morning. Um, my name is Frederick Hudson. I'm the CEO and founder of Pigeonly. And in a sentence, what Pigeonly is, is a platform that makes it easy for people to search, find, and communicate with incarcerated loved ones. Started this company out of my own experience. I served close to five years in federal prison for distribution of marijuana. This was way before the sweeping regulation changes that's happening now, super early. And um, during that time, I saw there was this huge population of people that no one's paying attention to, and we all had the same problem. It was very difficult and expensive to stay in touch um, with our support network of family and friends. So once I was released, um, got with my co-founder um, and started what's now Pigeonly. Um, today, we raised a little over six million venture capital. We have a team of 35. We're based in Las Vegas, and we have, you know, we've been growing really rapidly. We have customers in 88 different countries, and um, it's been an interesting um, journey from where I started to where I am. As you know, the company has kind of taken a life of its own. Wow. Hey, family. Uh, Jay Bailey here, uh, president and CEO of the H.J. Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Literally less than a mile down the road, we have 56,000 square feet, the largest center in America dedicated to black entrepreneurs and small business owners. This will be our safe space to fail and to fly. I think there's a lot of activity. I think we need more concentration. And when we start talking about movements, they're almost always built out of institutions. And we've never had an institution dedicated to growth scale economics. I often say to change the narrative, you gotta change the narrators. This building's owned by us, controlled by us, master planned by us, built by us, for us, unapologetically. Because when I talk about race, and I'm sure we'll get into it, I don't talk from an emotional space. I think like an economist. And if you've got a city like Atlanta that's 54% African-American, 54%, we lead the country in income inequality, we lead the country in economic immobility. Child born into poverty has less than a 4% chance of escaping it. Well, the thing that we're afraid to talk about, there are no poor white neighborhoods in Atlanta. There are no failing Latino schools in the city of Atlanta. There are no Asian ghettos in the city of Atlanta. So literally, guys, 100% of the demographic that is actually driving those statistics are black people. And we need to create platforms that actually raise revenues, create jobs, build enterprise, and give us a place where the best resources in the country are brought to one place to move us forward economically. Awesome, awesome. So can you talk a little bit, Jay, about how you're doing that? I think the, the place and space matter. Mm -hmm. 
uh, there's this narrative that Atlanta is the black Mecca. Have we heard that? Anybody from Atlanta? Anybody come to Atlanta on that promise? Uh, the streets are paved with gold. You turn on the faucet, milk and honey come out. If you're black, if I just get to Atlanta, everything is perfect. If you read the magazines, you read the newspapers. But the thing is, if I move from Chicago on to Atlanta on that promise, where do I get started? I want to create the place where we get started. And it's a collaborative model, not a comp competitive model, like literally where we're sitting. I'm excited about all the assets that we're having come online that are owned or controlled by people that look like me in a city that's 54% African-American. If this is where we gather, down the street will be where we grow. And it will be a collaborative model because now, just like a, well, the way that we treat entrepreneurship, if you want to be a doctor, top medical school, continuing education throughout the life of your business. You want to be a lawyer, the same thing. You want to be an entrepreneur, good luck. We are actually creating what I'm calling a circular economy of continuous support and lifelong learning. We do it now the equivalent of, if you got an English degree, if I went to University of Georgia and I took English 101, and at the end of the semester they gave me a degree in English, that'd be ridiculous to think. But that's how we treat entrepreneurship training, in segments. It's, it's <clears throat> episodic and transactional. We have got to create a platform from ideation all the way through success that continues to feed on one another, and that's the environment that we're creating at the Russell Center. So, Frederick, you didn't have a Russell Center. No, I didn't. But you had a, you had a brilliant idea yes. about how you could get started and what the world needed. What would you say to Jay about what is necessary in a Russell Center based on what you've learned through your process? I would say a lot of the stuff he just mentioned, helping you getting started, um, getting the information. Was, there was a big information and learning curve that I went through. Um, but beyond that, a big piece that a lot of minority founders have, particularly in technology businesses, is we don't have the network or the technical capacity to build whatever our vision may be. Um, and that's a big component um, with, uh, you know, businesses that are heading down that path is being able to identify technical talent, helping someone even understand, helping you understand, speak that language. So that's something that I learned over time. I mean, I can speak the language now. I'm not, I'm not a coder by trade. I don't have that background at all. Um, but being able to, to help, help someone to help you, guide you through how to speak that language, to be able to bring on technical talent, whether it's engineering talent, whether, you know, a buddy of mine, I don't know where he is, but he actually built, you know, a physical machine. Um, you know, if, even if it's that type of engineering talent, whatever that vision may be for you, to help someone to teach that language, so you can speak, so you can bring that talent on, that's, that's critical. Did you experience failure along the way? We don't have enough time to this one. <laughs> see, see, because what I'm trying to get to is like, as entrepreneurs, uh, people see you when you're on the cover of the magazine, but they don't see you when you've had that experience of failure, particularly because failure isn't a thing that black folks can um, do easily. Uh, as, as a way of being, and so can you share some of what you failed at and how you bounced back from that? Yeah, I think, I think in a lot of ways we feel, you know, particularly being black, when you're building a company, you don't necessarily have or, be, or, or extended the same amount of grace as your white counterparts um, when you're building a business. Um, so you have a lot more pressure. You know, you grow up being told from your parents you have to be twice as good twice as fast, twice as better than everyone else, um, to even just be equal to what they have, right? So, you know, for me, some of those experiences were around hiring talent, you know, which is super critical. I mean, a lot of times you focus a lot on fundraising when you first build a business, but, you know, one of the most single factors that can make or break your business is a team that you build around you or the ability to bring a team around you, right? Because no one wants to invest in just one 
idea guy, they want to invest in a team that has the ability to execute and bring this vision to life, right? So building that team and being able to articulate your vision to be able to build that team is, is critically important. And, I, and that was a, a, a really tough for me in the beginning. I didn't know how much of my story I should leverage and talk about when I was talking to, whether it be, when you, because you're always pitching, whether you're pitching to investors, whether you're pitching to employees, whether you're pitching to vendors or service providers. So it was always this thing for me, like how much should I talk about, you know, why I know what I know, why I know this is a market, why I know that this is a business um, when I'm talking to those different groups. And being able to embrace that, you know, I had a lot of false starts getting comfortable with that. But once I was able to brace that and leverage that as one of my biggest assets, it was because of what I went through is because I understood this market. That's why I can build the company that I'm building. Um, so that was a big thing for me as far as my biggest struggles in the beginning is being able not only to own my story, but also being able to tell my story effectively to bring, you know, whether it be investors, vendors, employees, to build that team that's necessary success. So it's very consistent with what we've been talking about around the below and above the green line. The below the green line is your story. It's yeah. your values. It's where you come from. And the above the green line are all the things you have to do to make your business work, all the structures and policies and so forth. I do have a question, a, a below the green line question. And you can say, you know, I'm not, I'm not answering that. But I, I want to know what did you do with, what did you do with the feeling of, I had this experience and now folks are making millions or billions of dollars <laughs> off. What did you do with that? Particularly, be, particularly because Pigeonly, out of your experience, came Pigeonly. Right. So what did you do with that? Are you talking about marijuana or are you talking yeah, about talking just about inmate marijuana. communications? Oh, I mean that. So I live in Las Vegas mm -hmm. and Las Vegas, it's legal for medicinal and recreational use. Um, but it's the same thing we've seen in a lot of other industries, right? So if you criminalize a group of people that have been feeding their families or taking care of themselves or that was their economic path, whether right or wrong, um, and then now that they've been criminalized for it, they can't participate in this economy, now billion dollar economy that, you know, um, white people are now making millions on, right? And, you know, they're heroes for investing in these companies. They're heroes for investing back in these founders. Um, and a very small percentage of these licenses are going back into the communities that have been criminalized and over-policed for that same, very same issue. So um, it's, I think, that's where even in our business, we've started focusing more about how to leverage and how to implement policy in our day-to-day -day business. And I think we as a people have to focus more on policy and how you know, we can you know, complain or, or talk about whatever we don't like. But until we start investing in, in, in changing the policy and looking at what that looks like, then these things aren't going to change because that's what controls who gets what licenses. That's what controls who set these rules up. And if none of us in that room when that conversation is happening, it's going to benefit the people who's in that room. And usually that's just not us. So Jay, can you, one, does the center have a policy component um, to, to the work that you're doing? And, and two, kind of separately, do, how do you think about failure and how are you building that into the business model of the Russell Center? I mean, to your point, I'll start with the second. Mm -hmm. Um, I was having a conversation with David Cummings. He's the founder of Atlanta Tech Village on the north side. Uh, and he came down to the south side to be at our center. And to your point about twice as good, uh, twice as sharp, you can't learn if you can't be vulnerable. It is a key component to actually learning anything. And if I walk into a space thinking that I have to be perfect, that I can't not know, that I have to be on the cutting edge of everything, the vulnerability it takes to actually move forward does not exist and therefore I stay still. 
We, again, we have to create this safe space to fail and to fly and create a culture because we all know you leaving that good job, grandma, I want to start a business. <laughs> Boy, you better keep that good job. And should you fail, I told your dumb ass. <laughs> it's literally a baked in cultural thing that we have to overcome. So even at the center, more than any program, I almost get angry when people say, well, what's your program? It's got to be more than that. When we start talking about the whole entrepreneur, I got to account for the loneliness, depression, the anxiety that goes along with being an entrepreneur, especially in the black community. I got to account for if you're a single mother with two kids or you're actually down to, you got to make a decision between paying this invoice and buying a sandwich. We've got to take care of the community in a different way. And that just can't be left up to programming and curriculum. It's got to be a holistic approach that lifts a community, gives it hope, gives it belief, gives it, gives it self-esteem, self-confidence to know that it's possible. Because part of it is also our narrative. I think the only difference between Buckhead and Bankhead, and if you're not from Atlanta, essentially that's the North and the South, is access, opportunity, and exposure. No difference. Kids in Buckhead want to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, consultants, and run companies. Kids over in Bankhead want to be rappers, athletes, and dope dealers. God puts brilliance everywhere. And you can't tell me that we're not losing points on GDP because we're not maximizing and innovating in these communities like you pigeonly came out of incarceration. There's so much brilliance in our communities but because we don't have the access, opportunity, and exposure. Therefore, it doesn't happen. The conversations on stage and among the attendees at Spectrum were powerful in sharing lived experiences and bringing hard conversations out of the shadows. Many members of the Atlanta community have continued these conversations and will also be bringing more people into the conversations around inclusive entrepreneurship and increasing access to capital at SOCAP 19. We hope you'll join us on October 22nd to 25th in San Francisco. You can learn more about the speakers and agenda at socialcapitalmarkets.net and get a great discount for being a listener with the code PODCAST250. And if you can't join us, we'll keep sharing highlights here on Money and Meaning. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money and Meaning. Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.